This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Julia Otsuka, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. It has been almost 20 years since When the Emperor Was Divine, your debut. It's been almost 10 since Buddha in the Attic, and now we're here with The Swimmers, which is one of the most beautiful books I have read in a long time. It is 159 pages of perfect sentences, which is not something I get to say all that often. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about craft and inspiration and all sorts of things. But hi, can we introduce listeners to The Swimmers, please? Is a novel that I worked on for many, many years. The premise always sounded slightly insane to me when people asked what it was I was writing about. I would say swimming and dementia, but it really is about a swimming pool and uh, the community of swimmers who go to that pool. And one of the swimmers who is rather peripheral in the beginning, Alice, is really highlighted in the second half of the book, which that's really where her half of the story begins to unfold. You've been sort of hinting at this book, though, for about a decade, I think. You are correct. So you've known for a while that you wanted to do this. Alice is sort of the first time that we've had a character in one of your books who has a proper name as part of her character. The women in Buddha in the Attic, they did have first names, but they spoke in a collective we, which we're going to come to that in a second. But can we talk about Alice for a second? Well, I gave her a name because this book is really her story. I guess it's the first time I've tracked only a single character. My first novel was really about an entire family, and Buddha was about an entire group of young picture brides. But I really wanted to focus on one person and her long, slow descent into dementia, and that is why I gave her a name. And one of the chapters was actually published in Granta as a short story. Was that the start of the book? Because it is sort of a catalog of what happens as dementia progresses in a person. Actually, I sketched out some of these pool scenes a long, long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, but just, you know, a few paragraphs. And then, um, I don't know, I put them in a drawer somewhere. And I did write Diem Perditi actually I took a few months off from finishing up The Buddha in the Attic, my last novel, because I wanted to write something for symphony space for selected shorts. <laughs> so it was the first time I'd actually just sat down and written a short story. So I sat down and I wrote the short story, Diem Perditi. And I think I somehow knew that I wanted that to be the kind of quiet center of the novel. And I put the pool pieces in front of it and then what comes after, after it. But it's kind of the quiet still center. And in a way, the soft beating heart of the novel. Yeah, it definitely is the beating heart of the novel, without a doubt. There's a lot of comedy, though, to the opening bits about the swimmers. They don't quite realize that they're a community, but they really are. And there's some conspiracy theories about the cracks in the pool. And everyone has patterns of behavior. And it seems like it was quite fun for you to write maybe because I mean you have a lot of freedom in these details too it's like well my marriage is not going well on the outside but in the pool I can do anything (laughs) (laughs) yes actually I began as a writer writing comedy or humorous short stories and I never thought of myself as being a serious writer of historical fiction which is how I ended up presenting myself to the world. Um, But I always think that there is a little bit of humor in everything that I'm writing, but often I think it doesn't come across. I remember once I heard uh, the first chapter of Buddha read out loud, again, at Selected Shorts, and 
I had written it thinking it was very funny, but of course nobody laughed at all. And I realized that the flip side of humor is really sadness. And I, I can really hear it come through when I listen to somebody else read it. But I really did have a fun time writing this pool chapters. I mean, I'm just fascinated by groups of people and erratic personalities. And um, it was just this very insular world that was really a stand-in for the world at large, you know? And, you know, I just wanted to point out people's quirks and everybody is odd in a way. And in this world in particular, I think people do have a lot of set patterns and rituals and they are a bit fanatic about their love of the pool and of the act of swimming, um, which I can actually really relate to having been a recreational swimmer for many years myself. It's a very odd world of special pool people. Wait, is the touching of the foot thing, if you want to pass someone, is the, I'm, I'm not a pool person doing laps kind of thing, but that was one detail where I was like, I'm not sure how I'd respond if someone touched me on the foot. While if, if you were a newbie, you might be a little freaked out, but no, that, that's a very common, you, you okay. know, it, it, you, you just do that to alert the person in front of you that you're going to pass them, but it can be a little freakish, I think, if you're not expecting it. <laughs> one of the things I love about reading your work, because all of your novels are these very tight, controlled beautiful pieces of prose. And I have to say that whenever I read one of your books, I don't want to read anyone else for a while. And I can't obviously do that as a bookseller, but it's a very specific experience. And I get lost in your sentences. And then you give me about 160 pages to get lost in. But these stories, even though you're writing novellas, they're epic. They're absolutely epic. You cover so much ground. But I think at one point you talked in a previous interview about reading your work out loud. While you were working, do you still do that? Actually, I did not with this novel because mm -hmm. I thought that it would slow me down. And yet this is the novel it took the longest to write. But I, I really did that when I was writing Buddha in the Attic because I was just super tuned into the rhythm of the language. And that novel, it really came to me almost like a song or like a chant. Um, whereas with Emperor, that really came to me visually very much just as a series of pictures that I could see in my head. But no, actually didn't. I didn't read this aloud, I don't think at all. Did you start with the idea of this community and this one member of the community? Is that, did you start with the idea instead of images, instead of language, the way you did with the two earlier books? I started with the idea of a community. And as I continued to write about these people, I think I realized that I wanted to bring Alice to the forefront by the end of the pool chapters, but I didn't realize that at first. So in revisions, I went back and I, I brought her out a little bit more in contrast to the backdrop of the pool in that community. But it wasn't really clear to me in the beginning how to connect these two halves of the novel and trying to figure out the ending of the, the second chapter, the crack was, took a lot of thinking. It's fun though, when we're getting all of the different inputs and it's someone saying, well, you can't trust that person. They're always just happy-go-lucky and they're always thinking positively and they think everything's fine and you can't trust that person. And then someone else saying, well, of course, I'm just going to go somewhere else because uh, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with you. But how did you find that thread? How did you come out of that sort of very comedic punctuation of that kind of dialogue into this very big beating heart of the rest of the book? I don't even think of myself as following threads, although I think I'm very, at some level, very, you know, very pattern oriented. I'm very much into repetition, but it's really hard to say. I think I work very, very intuitively. It's I don't really know how I do what I do. I just kind of do it. That's a lame answer, but I never outline at all. Although, you know, I'll have a lot of random notes and post-its, you know, that, that are on my wall. Um, and a lot of writing is just about finding the right 
order in which to present scenes. So I'll move something here and it's not quite right. I'll move it there. And all of a sudden something just clicks. I kind of move from sentence to sentence and then from paragraph to paragraph. That's really about all I can say. I don't know. I get to read the results. So I'm pretty okay with whatever explanation you're going to hand me. But I do have another question though. You have been a working writer. This has been your day job. This has been your job job since you graduated with an MFA from Columbia, right? You had studied painting at one point, and then that was not the thing ultimately that you wanted to do, right? Correct. And actually, I studied sculpture and painting at Yale. And I mean, my first love was really figurative sculpture. Even the smell of clay just makes me kind of excited to think about it, although it's been years. And the smell of paint as well. Turpentine, not so good for you. But I actually began a graduate program in painting in Bloomington, Indiana, and I dropped out after about three months. And I moved to New York City, and then I was at the New York Studio School for a couple of years also, just studying painting. But I think that there was a rather large gap between the kinds of paintings that I wanted to make and that I could see in my head and what I could actually do technically. And that gap was very frustrating. I think I also became overly self-conscious during the act of painting, which when I began to paint, it did not have, it was very, it was very free. I was just so immersed in the act of looking um, that I almost didn't notice that I was painting. But I finally just quit painting because I just felt so, so frustrated about what I was actually able to do and make on the canvas. And then a couple of years later, I just very tentatively began to write, but not with the aspiration of becoming a writer. It was just something that I like to do. And then I found actually rather fun. Um, I liked moving words around on a page. And I think I was a little bit older and having had that experience of failure uh, with painting, I just felt like I had a lot less to lose with writing. And I didn't take it as seriously as I had taken painting and taken myself as a painter when I was younger. Also, I think I didn't have that same gap between what I wanted to do and what I could do. I feel like language is it's an easier medium for me to handle than actually the language of color and paint. Here you are saying that maybe we're not taking your writing as seriously as your painting, but you have an MFA from Columbia. <laughs> That's not nothing. And you studied with Maureen Howard, who I quite like, but I think her approach is stylistically different from yours, I would argue. But she's also part of how Emperor came to be, which I didn't know this until very recently when I was doing the research for the show. I actually wrote the first chapter of Emperor Evacuation Order Number 19 when I was in her thesis workshop. And it was the first piece of serious writing that I'd ever done. So she'd only seen my, you know, my humorous stories up until then. And then I, I wrote the first chapter just as a standalone short story, not as the beginning of a novel. And then I wrote another short story, which is actually Train, which is now the second chapter of the novel. But each story seemed like a one-off, and I thought I would write them and then return to my comedy writing. She saw something there and she encouraged me to continue writing about this particular family um, who sent Japanese American family who sent to the camps from World War II. And I think if it hadn't been for her, I would have probably gone back to my humorous writing. So she really kind of gave me the green light to think of myself as more of a serious writer. Your mother's family was interned at Topaz in Utah, which is like all of the camps in a really inhospitable landscape. And there's a photo that Dorothea Lange took of your family. And it's a really intense photo of your grandmother. I mean, your grandfather had already been sent to jail. Right. My grandfather had been arrested several months earlier, the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed. So mm -hmm. that photo 
actually, we found it was after Emperor was published, but there was a whole cache of Dorothea Lange photographs that surfaced. I think it was around 2008. And they had been initially impounded by the government because they were considered to be too sympathetic towards the Japanese. So as you know, Dorothea Lange was hired by the government to um, document the going away of the Japanese Americans, which seems rather odd now that the government would even do that. In 2008, all these found photographs were put online because they're all part of the National Archive. And so a friend of my uncle's was looking through the photos and uh, he said to my uncle Andy, he said, hey, I think there's a photo of you and your sister, my mother and your mother here. And so sure enough, it was a Dorothea Lang photograph, which was just amazing to see. You know, they were just frozen in this moment in time. And there she was, my grandmother. She looked very much as I remembered her. But, you know, in the photo, my uncle is about seven or eight and he's wearing, I love this detail. I wish I'd seen it before I'd writing, before I finished writing Emperor, I would have worked it into the novel, but he's carrying his mother's purse for her underneath one arm. And then around his neck, there is, he's carrying a canteen and it's, it's hanging from his neck on a canvas strap and it's probably filled with water because he's probably been told that they're going to camp. So I think he's, he has some sort of Boy Scout camp, summer camp in mind. So he's bringing along a canteen of water. They've just arrived in the photograph. They've just arrived at, it's called a temporary assembly center. It was at the Tamperin horse race track south of San Bruno, close to San Francisco. And so I think he's just beginning to realize that this is not the kind of camp that he'd envisioned. So you can kind of see expression on his face. He's just, he looks very, very serious and just rather stunned. When Emperor Was Divine starts with your family's personal story, and you did quite a lot of research into the camps. And then when it comes to Buddha in the attic, you've got all of this work that goes into researching farming cycles, which I know nothing about. I'm grateful that there are farmers who know what they do. But how much research did you need to do for the swimmers? For swimmers, I actually read, you know, I read some books about swimming, um, just the history of swimming. And I read several books about nursing homes and the business of nursing homes, um, which was really, really interesting. And then a lot of books about dementia. I think I probably do more research than I, I need to do, but it always gives me, I think, a feeling of security. Just have a bigger will to draw on when there are more facts at hand. I can understand research being a tether of sorts, helping keep you grounded. The reality is we don't talk about these things in the Japanese American community. You find people, and I'm sure this was your experience with your mother, that she did not want to talk about what happened when they were at Topaz. Yes, there was a lot of silence in my family, although the word camp was kind of bandied around. But I think as a young child, I didn't understand what she was talking or what kind of camp it was that she was referring to. But you know, I don't really remember my grandmother speaking very much about camp at all. And many Japanese American families, there's just utter silence around that topic. I think it's just a chapter that they'd rather just put behind them. There's a detail though, that I love about Alice because it says so much that her husband wishes she had learned to cook. And by that, he means Japanese food. She's great with meatloaf and macaroni and cheese and tuna noodle casserole and Campbell's soup. She is a woman of her time. She knows how to cook all of these things that she would want to eat because being Japanese, people stopped speaking Japanese. They stopped using 
tea sets and wearing kimono and all, all of these things were destroyed because of what happened when people went into the camps. And then also when they came out, there was nothing left. Yeah. I mean, there's literally nothing left um, since they, they burned many of their positions or they gave things away or, or things were stolen from the warehouses where they were kept during the war. And I think after the war, a lot of the you know, young people that came out of the camps when they themselves became parents, like my mother, they made an effort to raise their children in as all-American a way as possible. And so I was raised, you know, eating all-American food. We had Japanese food, I think, once a year on New Year's. My grandmother would come over and make this amazing spread of sushi and sashimi. But yes, there, there was a real attempt made to erase you know, any cultural traces of Japanese-ness, I think, in many, many families. And memory is hard. And memory is part of what's very hard for Alice as well, as we go through her journey. When we first meet her, she's just a swimmer that everyone knows is a little different. Yes. And everyone in the pool, though, in a way, is a little different. You know, mm-hmm. they're all just a little, they're all a little odd in their own special ways. But I almost wanted to introduce Alice to the reader without the reader realizing that it was going to end up being her story. I just wanted to show her as a fairly content swimmer in the world, in her world. Um, and just, you know, as part of the community and as one of many, because I think that, you know, when we meet people or characters with dementia, we often forget that they've had very full lives, you know, up until this point. So I really wanted to paint a picture of the world that she came from and the pool seemed like a good stand in for the world. Um, and just to show her, as part of a community of people. Is that your favorite moment for Alice in The Swimmers? Just her life in the pool? I think my favorite moment is actually the very, very last paragraph of the novel, okay. <laughs> which is presented as a memory of sorts. I wanted to present her as a fairly happy person at one point. And I also just wanted to convey just the sheer joy of being in the water. You know, we are, you know, initially we're very, very physical beings in, in a very physical world. We're not just our minds and what we can remember, but you know, we have bodies. We have bodies and we all experience grief. And grief is something that runs through the pool community as well, not just because the pool is closing down, but the pool is their refuge from the grief that they're feeling in their day-to-day lives, as you say, above the water, which is such a great way to describe it. It's a haven of sorts, or it's a watery sort of Eden. It's just this place where people can go to escape whatever ails them above ground on land. You know, when you're swimming, you're very much immersed in the act of swimming and breathing it and not drowning. You know, you're very, very focused. And when you ideally get into that state of flow, it's very zen. You know, you're just breathing, you're stroking, you know, you're moving through the water and you're just, you're pure animal in, in some way, you know, you're just an animal moving through through space, through water. It's a place, it's a refuge. It's a place that these swimmers go because everyone is going through something above ground on land. Every, everyone has problems of their own, you know, that, that is just life. I think that is just part of life. So it's an escape. And also the community is very, you know, people watch out for each other. It's very loving in a way. And people also understand what it's like to be almost addicted <laughs> the act of swimming and what it can bring to you and your body. Is there a moment from that first half, from the the section of the book that's set at the pool, is there a moment from that section that gives you just great joy? (laughs) There is one paragraph where the swimmers are trying to imagine the pool without them. 
And um, this is after the, the crack has been seen and then identified as something rather malign. And it was really fun imagining the lives of objects, you know, like the skimmer net, <laughs> you know, how it dreams of better things, you know, rather than just scooping up hair. And <laughs> it could be, you know, scooping up butterflies or little brown birds or kickboards, just like the secret lives of objects after hours when nobody is watching them. That was actually really kind of fun to write in a very almost absurdist way. Also, the, the flip turn paragraph was very fun to write. It just always, to me as a swimmer, just seemed way too scary. So it's, <laughs> I would just touch the end of the lane and turn around and just go on. I always envied people who could do the flip turn, but I just was not that good. But everybody, you know, has their own way of trying to learn how to do a flip turn, which is not an easy thing. Um, but that was really fun to write. Almost every paragraph actually was really fun. And that's why I think that's why I wrote those paragraphs, because there was something about each, the nut of each paragraph that I, you know, just kind of made me laugh in a way. And there were so many people that you could distill the essence of their character down in a sentence or two. And there's so many moments where I was laughing out loud because I was like, oh, that is, I know exactly who that person is now based on that one sentence. And I don't want to spoil it for people because there's so much exuberance in that first half of the book, which sets us up for the second half. And it sets us up because we understand what the community is losing. The pool is, it's a happy place. And the second half, the mood is very, very different. And, you know, it may be a shock for the reader all of a sudden to realize we're in a completely new place. But I think you do see Alice's slow decline as the mm -hmm. two pool chapters progress. I mean, she does get worse. And the second half, well, I do see Alice, though, as even though she's in a not great place, she, she has a sense of humor. And, you know, she's not completely depressed which I think is one of the blessings of Alzheimer's once you get past the initial awful stage of realizing that you are ill and that you are going to become more ill and eventually die. There's this moment of recognition, which is rather horrifying. And then at a certain point, I think you don't really realize what it is that's wrong with you. And once she enters that more forgetful stage, she's able to have moments of joy and be in the moment in a very different way than she was in the moment when she was in the pool. And her long-term memory is there for quite a while. And there are a couple of moments where she says to her daughter, I didn't like that one, meaning an old boyfriend, or you looked at him more than he looked at you. And you can really get a feel for who Alice was as the narrative's mother. You're writing this book from a third-person omniscient point of view. What does that distance provide you as the writer? You know, I've never been able to write in the first person. It just seems too horrifying in a way. <laughs> but I think I'm inching my way up to it. Diem Perditi is told in the you voice, so it's second person plural, and same with the last chapter. And then the penultimate chapter, the La Vista, is really told in it's a similar voice to the swimmers. It's although, well, it's not in a way, but it is the voice of not necessarily a group, but of an institution and the voice of the nursing home for Bella Vista. But I think that writing in the you voice was a way of getting at things that were more personal to me without having to write about myself. It just put a little bit of distance between me and myself and the things that I was thinking about. The reason I bring up voice too, is that is part of the great pleasure of reading your sentences because the voice is so clear. When you sit down to write, and you have had a very similar process, I think, for all three books where you're writing in the same place, roughly for the same amount of time in pencil, 
which I love. And we'll come back to pencils in a second. When do you know that you have the voice, though, that is the one that you are using for each book? Because they are very distinct. I think it's when I can literally hear the first sentence in my head. It could take a while to find the voice, though, with Buddha in the Attic. I think it took me several months before I came up with the right first sentence. And I tried to write that actually initially from the point of view of one picture bride. And then later I was going through my notes and I just saw this sentence on the boat. We were mostly virgins. And as soon as I saw that sentence, I had written it without remembering, um, which is the great thing about having physical notes. And then I, I thought that would just be a great beginning to the novel. And that's what gave me the idea for using the first person plural voice. The swimmers, I think it didn't begin so much as a voice, but just as an idea, just the idea of somehow wanting to present the world of the pool. So actually, like I said, I'd written, just sketched out a few rough paragraphs years and years and years ago. And I pulled them out after I finished Buddha in the Attic and I was looking at them and I thought, oh, you know, there really is something here. So that first line is pretty much unchanged from how it was written, you know, 15 years ago. I kept it there, but each section really has its own voice. So it also took me a while to find the right voice for the Bella Vista, the care home chapter. You know, I tried to tell that in several different ways and also the right voice for the last chapter. I didn't initially have it written in the second person. Once I realized that I wanted to tell it in the second person, like Dean Perditi, things kind of began to click, but I have several different graphs of it told. Actually, there's a version in the first person, um, but it just... It, it just didn't sound right to me. So what, I guess what I'm saying is it can sometimes take a long time to find the right voice. But once I do, you know, I'm kind of off and running. How much rewriting are you doing while you're creating these books? It's basically all I'm doing <laughs> is rewriting. <laughs> I can't even really count drafts. I don't okay. really work that way. Each sentence is rewritten, you know, so many times. And then, but once I finish a paragraph, it's pretty much the way I want it to be. So once something is done, I don't do a lot of rewriting. And once I finish a chapter, it's usually pretty clean and I don't go back and do a lot of reworking. So you basically pass off your manuscript to your publisher and say, here you go. With this book, yes. Actually with the first two also, but usually what I do before I get to that stage is I usually pass off each chapter to my agent, who is a really excellent reader. I trust her judgment so much. So she's always mostly always the first, the first reader, my editor, you know, won't get the entire manuscript until years later, you know, years later after my agent has seen the first chapter. Yes. She is one of the best readers. I know. <laughs> She's absolutely the bomb. And that's why you switched to writing in pencil, right? The rewrites. Yes. There was a phase earlier. I think maybe when I was writing Emperor, when I actually wrote with a fountain pen, which I found physically just so pleasurable. It was just something just so kind of hefty and real about holding a fountain pen in your hand, but the pages just got too messy because I was constantly crossing out words or entire sentences. And the great thing about a pencil is you can just erase. Wait, with a fountain pen, does that mean you've got the little bottle of ink on the desk with you? No, you know, I think they were actually refill cartridges. Right. Okay. So no, I didn't actually have bottles of ink. The only reason I ask is I pre-pandemic, I spent a lot of time on planes and pens will blow up. I'm picky about pens, but they leak like Matt. So I've always traveled with mechanical pencils. And actually, I prefer pencil when I'm prepping for an interview anyway, because 
pens always bleed through galley pages and manuscript pages and Xeroxes and all of this stuff. So I keep a pencil sharpener on my desk at the office and people are like, why do you have a pencil sharpener? (laughs) I like really sharp pencils. I like working with pencils. So that was a moment where I was like, oh, see, you know, I'm not the only person who thinks a pencil is a nifty device. I have the same problem on planes. When I'm taking notes in my Clairefontaine graph paper notebooks, which is another thing that I do, I use a certain kind of rollerball pen, which tends to often explode on the plane. So <laughs> I love these gel pens. These oh, it's are, a gel pen. I've never used those. It's a G2 gel pen. It's a pilot. I highly recommend okay. it. <laughs> G2 gel. I'm writing it down right now. It is a delight to write with. It's just on planes, they're completely useless. But who are some of your influences? I mean, we've talked about Maureen Howard being your teacher, but I feel like there's no one who quite does what you do. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't have really any influences for the swimmers. It was just kind of its own odd thing. But my initial influence was was Hemingway. When I began to write Emperor, I was I read almost all of his short stories, um, which I loved, and then Nick Adams stories and A Movable Feast. That was really my introduction to Hemingway. And I, I never really seriously read Hemingway and I kind of stayed away from him for years. I thought he was a man's man and that I wouldn't really be able to relate to what he was writing about. But when I read A Movable Feast, I was just amazed. These essays were just so fresh, you know, and it was like they'd been written yesterday and just the language was just the cadence of the sentences was so gorgeous. And that was really my gateway to Hemingway. He's brilliant. And I love what he does with the Nick Adams stories. It's the real tip of the iceberg thing where Nick has come back from World War One and he's clearly damaged in some way, but the war is never referenced directly. And that's what I wanted to do with Emperor. You know, this family has been traumatized, but I, I didn't want to overplay the backstory. It just seemed like it wasn't necessary. No, I think you're absolutely right. Now I have to go back to the Nick Adams stories because I hadn't thought about them in a million years. And the minute you said, oh, the war is in the background, I was like, oh, right. I had not thought about that in a really, really long time. Is there anyone you've been reading lately? that you're in love with and want the world to know about? I have been reading a lot of Rachel Cusk. I just think she is amazing. (laughs) I have not started her most recent novel, Second Place, but I look forward to that. And I would really just follow her anywhere. I just think she's just such a brilliant thinker and she's really pushing the boundaries of story, what we mean by definition of story. And I just think she's brilliant. I also really love Katie Kitamura. I loved Intimacies. Intimacies. (laughs) Oh, that book is so gorgeous, gorgeous too. Just so, just a hint of dread, this kind of spookiness and just these very clean, just beautiful, beautiful sentences and just very psychologically insightful and just the writing, just so gorgeous. Yeah, this is the book I was waiting for from her. Intimacies is just, if you haven't read it yet, folks, you need to pick this up quickly. It's really good. (laughs) And she takes such a complicated subject that people tend to be very black and white about. Right. It's very, very nuanced. I mean, who would think that you could, you know, sympathize with a war criminal and yet that's part of the job Mm -hmm. interpreter. I mean, she just goes to really difficult, amazing places that most of us cannot go. This is your third novel. You've taken your time with each of them. What have you learned from book to book? I think what I learned with each book is how to write that book. (laughs) Often nothing about having written my last book is helpful in the writing of a new book because I try to go someplace new with each novel because I think it's more interesting for me as a thinker and as a writer. I try not to repeat myself. I had this dream after I finished my first novel that I'd 
written my second novel and accidentally written the first novel all over again, <laughs> which is really what you do not want to do as a writer. So, or I mean, some writers actually do repeat themselves over and over again, but just in, in slightly different iterations and they remain fascinating stories. But I think for me, especially since I do so much research, I like to go someplace brand new and sort of challenging. And I, I need a new world that's complicated enough that it will hold my attention for the next few years. You talked about how you never thought you were going to write about the camps, but luckily you did. You've talked about how you had this idea of the picture brides for a while before you started writing about it. And you certainly thought about what became the swimmers for a while too, but what's next? Have you even started thinking about that? You know, I had started writing something a few months ago, which I just have not had time in the last few months. Everything has just been so busy, you know, with, with swimmers. So it's really been hard to get back to my regular routine, but there is something that I'm working on, but I don't even know what it is at this point. It's just very new. It's, I think it's too early to talk about, but it, it does actually seem even more personal in a way than swimmers, which was by far my most personal mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. I think I'm gradually aiming the beam at myself as I go along with my work. Maybe it's because I've run out of big stories to tell. I mean, my first novel was my family's big story. And then the second novel was a big story about my people. But I can't even say what the form of this is. I just don't. It's a little puzzling to me what it is. But all I know is that it's captured me in some way. It's a hot topic for me. So I'm just going to go with it until I've worked something out and figured out what it is that I'm writing about. I can be patient. I can be really. <laughs> you're one of the few writers I can be patient for. But actually, I should say writers in general, I can be patient for. There are other things. I will not stand online for things. Writers, I'll wait. <laughs> I'll totally, totally wait. You talked about one point in a different interview about writing about the disappearances and the community after the Japanese Americans return from camp. Do you think that's ever going to happen? Or do you feel like you've said what you've needed to say for yeah. the moment? Honestly, it was it was really kind of great to write a novel set in either the present or the recent past with swimmers. And right now, that's kind of what my brain is interested in is writing about the now. So I can't really say for sure that would be the logical third story to tell in terms of emperor and Buddha in the attic, what happens to the Japanese Americans when they return. So it's something I could return to in the future. I don't really know. I'm somebody who only seems to have one idea at a time. Some writers I'm very envious of, but will have many, many ideas in their head at any one time at, at books that they could write. But I seem to only be able to think of one thing at a time. That's okay. Like I said, I can be patient. <laughs> I can be very, very patient. Is there anything you wanted to talk about with the swimmers that we didn't hit? I mean, we are being intentionally vague because so much happens in 159 pages and there's so much to experience in this novel. And I feel very strongly that people should discover it on their own and not just you and I telling them what's coming next. But is there anything you wanted to talk about? It was very new for me just to write about just sheer joy, <laughs> you know, in terms of swimming and just to convey, you know, the sheer joy of swimming, you know, almost as a fan of swimming um, or as a lover of the pool. But that, that just seemed like a very fun thing to do. But, you know, I, I guess I don't think there's anything that we haven't touched on. I mean, I, I guess my goal as a writer is just, you know, I mean, readers take away from the book what they want. I'm not prescriptive at all in terms of what I want readers to take away. I just want them to have a good reading experience. And I think on a certain level, I want to break their heart. Which you do, which you did for me multiple times with The Swimmers, which actually you've done with every single one of your books for me as a reader. I think 
it was such a pleasant surprise to have that first half of the book where there was so much joy and so many weirdos in the swimming community. And I was like, well, obviously I'll follow Julie anywhere, but I really did want to see where it was going to go. And yet these two halves of this tiny, tiny book, and I keep stressing it's a tiny book because you can read it in a single setting if you'd like, but the two halves match perfectly. And I know you said earlier that you had a moment where you're like, I'm not entirely sure how these are going to connect. But I will say that the fact that Alice had a name, the first time I saw her name, I was like, okay, something's going to come. And I had the basic underpinnings of the story, but I very specifically didn't read anything about it until I had read it for the first time because I didn't want anyone else to interpret your work for me. And because when I first read Emperor, I just had a galley. I just read Emperor and I thought, wait a minute, who is this woman? I need to know more of her work. I need more of this book. And it's gone on to be assigned in countless classrooms. It's been the first read for over 30 schools, right? Um, actually, 60 or 70. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm working off of a number that's obviously like 10 years old. Talk to me website. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, that to me is amazing. The fact that this book that you had not technically planned on writing about your very personal family experience has gone on to touch so many people who might not have otherwise picked it up. I mean, you were the community read for a lot of towns and cities as well. And it's really exciting to see. It's really exciting to have people come to what was a profound experience for the Japanese American community and understand that there are implications and consequences beyond the experience of of families like yours. I had no idea. I mean, of course, I think as a writer, especially as a debut author, you have no idea what kind of life your your book will have. So I was as surprised as anyone. Also, there was just not a lot of historical ethnic fiction being written 20 years ago. Things are so different now mm-hmm. um, in a good way. Mm-hmm. There was much more room for a diversity of voices. But back then, things were very, very different. It didn't seem like a very marketable novel, um, which is, I think, I kind of assumed that I, I didn't even know if I would be able to get it published. You know, it was very different than, you know, from what my classmates were writing, for example. But one of the great things about being able to tour, um, especially in in the first few years after the book was published, was that I actually got to meet the people that I was writing about on the West Coast. I got to meet so many older Japanese Americans who'd been through the camps. And that was just just amazing to hear their stories. And that was actually where I got the idea for Buddha in the Attic was because I would speak to these women who come up to me and men sometimes too afterwards. And they would tell me about their grandmother or their mother or the great aunt who'd come over to America as a picture bride. And I heard so many different iterations of what it was like when they got off the boat, they were shocked to see that their husband was so old or so brown or, you know, so ugly, not at all like the man in the photo. And I just thought that is a great story. And I think I knew as soon as I started to hear these stories that that would be the, the beginning of my next novel. But it was, I mean, most of those people are now, unfortunately, gone. So it was just, it was a very amazing experience to get to speak to them and to hear their true life stories about what it was that they'd gone through. Because that generation did become, I think, more talkative as they approached the ends of their lives. And that's what The Swimmer does for Alice. It fills in the gaps. The way you fill in the gaps for the family in When the Emperor Was Divine and the way you fill in the gaps for the women of the Buddha in the attic, you fill in the gaps for Alice and the other swimmers in the swimmers. So, Julia Tsuka, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over and letting us ask you lots of questions because this was just great. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
Now it's time for your TBR top off here on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast, where we're going to add some books to your to-be-read list based on the interview today with Julie Otsuka and her new novel, The Swimmers. Excited to be with you this week. My name is James, and we are coming to you from the Northville store here in cold, cold Michigan. Along with me, as always, is Margie. Hi, Margie. Hello, James. Hello, hello. We're excited for a new novel to dive into today. And we got a couple books to recommend on top of that, right? What do you got? Well, so novels about mothers and daughters. It's very hard to choose one because there's so many really, really good ones. So I'm kind of going in an opposite direction from this one. My title is called Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It is by Maria Semple. So this book is delightful. Like it is so charming. It's very funny. It's really engrossing. It's a fast read, but it's really meaningful. So it's all these things. It's not sentimental. It's not over the top. It's one of my very, very favorite books to recommend for people when they need a book for vacation that is engrossing enough to be interesting and also something that they can put down if they need to and pick right back up again. So it's narrated by an extremely precocious 15-year-old named B. Fox, whose unconventional mother, Bernadette, is not only the bane of existence to the fellow parents at B's Chi-Chi private school, but she's also an architect. She never talks about it. And increasingly an agoraphobic who never leaves their Seattle home. However, when B aces her report card and claims her prize that she was promised if she would you know, just buckle down, do the work that the teachers are asking instead of doing all this other stuff that you love doing. She aces that report card and her prize is a family trip to Antarctica, which sounds amazing. (laughs) But before she can claim that prize, Bernadette vanishes without a trace or does she? So B begins gathering every email, every official document, any secret correspondence, every scrap of paper that she can put her hands on to try to build a case to figure out where her mother is gone and why. So B begins gathering every email, every official document, every secret correspondence, every little scrap of paper she can get her hands on, piecing together not only where her mother is gone, but who her mother actually is. This is a very touching and seriously funny novel about discovering your mother is a person with their own lives apart from you, which is a jarring realization at the best of times, let alone when your mother has vamoosed and you decide you are going to figure out what happened. So again, that is Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And it's by Maria Semple. That sounds awesome. I am pulling off of the theme of, you know, like in The Swimmers, something happens that is sort of out of everyone's control and changes the trajectory of their lives. And so this reminded me of the first long novel that I ever remember reading over 20 years ago. And that novel is A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. And it was a kind of a life-changing book for me to read. First of all, to read a book that long. I had never read a book that long. And I was really (laughs) proud of myself for reading a a 600-plus page novel. It's the story in uh, the Northeast in the 50s and 60s. The main character, John is best friends with a boy named Owen and they are on a baseball team together. Owen hits a baseball and it ends up hitting John's mom, hits her right in the head and she passes away right at the beginning of the book. And 
Yeah. It's so it's traumatic. And so these two friends have to figure out what does it mean? Is it fate? Is it chance? And then Owen decides that he must be God's instrument and that he believes that God has chosen him to fulfill a purpose. And of course, John thinks that he is crazy, <laughs> but the two <laughs> grow up together as Owen believes this. And it's the journey of, of them making sense of their lives, making sense of faith and friendship and ultimately, you know, purpose and meaning in the world. So it's this kind of great American novel that really takes you on a journey and one that I have never forgotten. So I certainly highly recommend this one by John Irving. It's my favorite book by him. Of course, he's written some really good books, but A Prayer for Owen Meany, I think will be one that you'll remember. So that sounds amazing. And I've never read that one. But when we were thinking of books that we would be recommending for this one. I almost decided on World According to Garp. So I'm really glad that I didn't decide (laughs) to pick that one. I just want to mention one other title. And this is the kind of book that you don't know exists until you need it. So I think that the more people that know that it exists, the better. It is called The 36-Hour Day, A Family Guide to Caring for People Who Have Alzheimer's Disease or other dementias. This book has been around for 40 years. It is currently in its seventh edition. So it has been revised every time they feel they have enough new information to put out a new edition. So this has everything from home care aids. It has useful apps to take care and keep track of everything, promising preventative techniques, different therapies. So that's for the person that is suffering. This also has a lot of advice for caregivers about avoiding burnout, tips for when and how to get extra help all that kind of stuff because we can't forget to care for the caregivers because the swimmers does deal with dementia. I did want to mention this one. It is a great resource. And if anybody that you know, I think we all know somebody that has been in a situation where they are giving care to somebody that is having a hard time. So if you ever need to suggest something, The 36-Hour Day by Nancy L. Mace and Peter V. Robbins is just the best resource that you could possibly come across. That's great. That can help a lot of people. Well, we hope that you'll stop into your local Barnes and Noble and get a recommendation and find a book that you will love, whether it's one of the ones we've talked about today or many, one of the many other books that we have for you. We hope that you'll do that. Thanks for listening to the TBR Top Off on Port Over, the Barnes and Noble podcast. As always, I'm James, and you can follow me on Instagram at James Reading Books. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Bookbrain. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.